Okay, glad to have you all, those of you who are in the audience, those of you who are watching via Zoom. We are in Psalm 9 tonight. Uh, Some believe that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 were originally one psalm, and we'll give a couple of reasons for that in a moment. But... We're not going to be able to get through them in one night. We're going to try to cover Psalm 9 tonight and Lord willing cover Psalm 10 next week. And then you can make your judgment about whether you think they're one or two or whether that really makes any difference in a certain perspective. Let's begin looking at the text. I'll call attention to the outline here of Psalm 9. I do this, again, not because it's the only possible outline. For every writer I looked at, they divided it a little differently. But something to help you break this down and hopefully give sense to the text and all that is around it. The text says, for the choir director on Muth Laban, a psalm of David. Now let me go ahead and comment on that. Muth Laban. Some of you have, I believe the New International has, the death of the son. The death of the son. This may have been a popular song at that time to which this song was composed. That may be the idea. It may be something else. We're we're not for sure. But Psalm 9, 1 and 2, you notice that this talks about praise continually. And there are five first-person verbs to speak of Praise to God. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. Or I will exult in you in the Hebrew. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So he begins with praise in 1 and 2. And then speaks of his enemy stumbling. Sometimes he will speak of his enemy in personal terms. Sometimes he will speak of national enemies. Sometimes he quickly reverts from one to the other. But in verses 3 through 6. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. And you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. In verses 7 through 10, uh, the Lord established His throne for justice is what we called it. But the Lord abides forever. He has established His throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute justice, judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Then a call to give praise in verses 11 and 12. Sing praise to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Verses 13 through 16, be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction from those who hate me. Lift up you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughters of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The Lord has sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the the net which they have hid. Their own feet has been called. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. Hagion, 
Selah. Now, those verses distinguish his fate from the fate of the nations. You're going to see that same kind of thing in 18 and 19. Or, excuse me, 17 and 18. And some group them all together. In verse 17, the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor will the hope of the afflicted perish. And then he begs that God not let man prevail. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Now let me ask you if there's anything about the text, the emphasis of the psalm, that you want to call attention to right offhand. Anything that really stood out to you about the psalm. You may not want to express it now, but if you do, feel free to. God's righteousness and justice. Okay, the righteousness and justice of God. And it's tied to God being a judge, isn't it? God being a judge. And I want to tell you a word that's never used here, but is a key idea. And that is the Lord is king. It talks about him sitting on the throne, but it doesn't use the word king specifically. But that is the assumption, and we'll tell you more why in a moment. And John, you raised your hand as well. Well, I was going to make a mention about the enthronement reference. It doesn't call him yeah. king, but it leaves you right, leads you right there. Yes, that's right. And, and, and kings were, I'll go ahead and say what I was going to say, kings were the highest judges in the land. That's why Nathan comes to David with that parable in 2 Samuel 12 about the man with the one little ewe lamb. That's why the two women come to Solomon in 1 Kings 3 asking him to divide the baby. Because the king was the highest judge in the land. And so the the ideas of God as king and God as judge are closely associated in Israel and in the ancient Near East. I was also going to say there's a repeated reference to a class of people with different terms. I'm reading from the NIV tonight, but I see the afflicted, the oppressed, and the needy. The afflicted, the oppressed, the needy, uh, the um, there may be some more terms used for that, uh, and they are contrasted with the wicked, who are mentioned quite frequently, and, and the wicked are closely associated with the nations. Did you see that? Did you notice that? Like in verse 17, the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forgot God. Okay, before we get into the the body of the psalm, let me mention a couple of reasons that people give for saying these may have been one psalm. One of the reasons is because ancient versions like the Septuagint and the Vulgate made Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 one psalm. Now, I mentioned to you before that there is some difficulty in numbering the Psalms because sometimes, like the Hebrew text of Psalm 9 has 21 verses because that title is considered verse 1. And so sometimes if you're reading in a commentary and it says Psalm 921, and you think Psalm 9's only got 20 verses, what happened? That's the explanation. But I will also tell you this, that sometimes because of this, because the Septuagint combines Psalms 9 and 10, their numbering is off. Till we off from the Hebrew text till we get to Psalm 148, 
Psalm 147, I believe they divide into two parts, into two Psalms. And so finally, that numbering comes back together. So what I'm saying is when you're reading a commentary and they make reference to this and that, the numbers at Psalms do not match up. I'm just trying to give you some explanation as to why. Um, But... Another thing that leads some people to say that they ought to have been one is because Psalm 10 doesn't have a title. And in book one, that is very, very rare. I think the next Psalm that doesn't have a title is Psalm 33. And uh, also, when you put Psalm Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 together, they form an acrostic. And it's an imperfect acrostic, but an acrostic nonetheless. Now, this is the first acrostic psalm that we have encountered, so let me explain what I'm talking about. Do you all ever remember, maybe Boyd, you preach some, but acrostic Sermons. I can remember we had a preacher when I was uh, very young who would occasionally preach an acrostic sermon. And he might like take the word Christ. And then he takes every letter of the word Christ and makes a point of it. And what the Hebrew does is like verse 1 begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 3 begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And verse, uh, and soon as this is an imperfect acrostic here, but verse 5 begins with the uh, third letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, a few of the letters are missing, but Psalm 10 and Psalm, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 form an acrostic. But I don't want to get lost in that, and I'm not so sure, especially if we're studying these back to back anyway, that that makes a lot of difference. Because we're going to try to see connections between them anyway. And we're going to call attention to some of those tonight. Uh, But I just want you to be familiar with a little bit of that uh, in in case you encounter it. But the psalm begins with praise to God. It begins with praise to God, and maybe this tells us that everything is should be seen through that lens of praise. In, in verses 1 and 2, there are five first-person verbs that speak of thanking or praising God. I will give thanks, I will tell, I will be glad, I will exult, I will sing praises. Five first-person verbs to speak of him giving thanks, telling God's story, being glad, rejoicing, and singing praise to God's name. He says, I will give thanks with all my heart. He's going to tell of all God's wonders. He tells of God's wonders and he does it with all his heart. The word all is mentioned twice in verse 1. He tells of all God's wonders. He gives thanks with all his heart. And he says, I will be glad. I will exult. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Remember how Psalm 8 started and ended. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I will sing praise to your name. In, in chapter, he, he describes God as O Most High. Look at 717, how it ended. Psalm 717. I will give thanks to the Lord according to righteousness. According to his righteousness. And will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. The Lord is described as the Most High. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. 
Notice that this particular psalm, as it speaks of thanking God and praising God, it praises God's person. In verse 2, I'm glad I exalt in you. I sing praise to your name. They exalt in the person of God. And in verse 1, they tell of the works of God. So the works of God, the person of God, are a cause of rejoicing. In verses 3 through 6, we see reference to his enemies. And the enemies are mentioned here in verse 3. My enemy turns back, they stumble and perish before you. In verse 6, the enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. In verse 13, be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction from those who hate me. So he mentions his enemies and those who hate him in verse 3, in verse 6, and in verse 13. He mentions them. And it says, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. They perish before you in verse 4, for you have maintained my cause. You sat on the throne judging righteously. Sometimes writers in the Psalms try to figure out the precise setting in David's life if they're willing to accept that it ties to David. They'll look for a precise setting in David's life. They'll look for a precise setting in the history of Israel. And often those things are hard to find. And because those things are hard to find, it is very difficult to to define who these enemies are particularly when they're described so generically in this passage. But as one writer eloquently said it, if I can quote it properly, he said the key thing is not who the enemies are, but it is before whom they fall. The reason the enemies stumble and perish is because they are doing that before you. And you have maintained my just cause. You sat on the throne judging righteously. It is because of God and who He is. Because He is the holy judge. Because He is the just judge. That He is confident that He will get a fair hearing. And that God will vindicate His case. But you notice that the enemies. Go in verses 3 and 4 to from personal enemies, it looks like, to national enemies in verse 5. You have judged the nations. And the nations are mentioned quite frequently in this psalm. They'll be mentioned again in verse 15. The nations have sunk down in the pit, which they have made. They will be mentioned in verse 17. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget. God, in verse 19, Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. In verse 20, let the nations know that they are but men. So the nations are mentioned frequently. Could it be that David's personal deliverances that he has experienced are a reminder to him that their national foes will also be defeated? One writer said that every deliverance we experience from the hand of God is a foreshadowing of the final deliverance that we will see from God. We may have time to come back to that later. But God in verse 5 is said to rebuke the nations to rebuke the nations, to destroy the wicked, and said, you have blotted out their name forever. You blotted out their name forever. Now that was considered 
a horrible, horrible thing that your name be blotted out forever. Remember the whole purpose of the Leveret Law of Marriage where your brother married your wife. Your brother married your wife if you didn't leave behind any children. He had a child by her and the child was yours legally. Child of the late brother. But the whole purpose of that in Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 and 6 is to keep one's name from being blotted out in Israel. But let me show you something about that passage. If you'll look over to Deuteronomy 25, well, the text tells us that the purpose of this law was that the name of the brother may not be blotted out. Look at verse 19 of Deuteronomy 25. This is talking about the Amalekites. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. The horrible fate that God has for the Amalekites is intensified by that leveret law. That leveret law shows what a disaster it is to have your name blotted out. And therefore, when God says of the Amalekites, their name's going to be blotted out. He says it here. He says it also in Exodus 17 verse 14. That shows us how horrible of a fate that was. By the way, in Deuteronomy 9 verse 14, God threatened to blot Israel out because of their sin of the golden calf. Deuteronomy 9 and verse 14. So God says of these wicked, He's going to blot them out. And He says in verse 6, The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. You have uprooted the cities. Jeremiah likes that word uproot. From Jeremiah 1, 9 and 10, he uses it all through the book. But you have uprooted their cities and the vast, the very memory of them has perished. Have you noticed the significance of the word perished? It was used in verse 3. They stumble and perish before you. It is also used in verse 5, though it's not indicated in the New American Standard Translation. It's used here in verse 6. The very memory of them has perished. And it is used uh, later in the text as well. Verse 18, uh, where it tells us the hope of the afflicted will not perish. You remember Psalm 1? I hope you do. Psalm 1, <laughs> verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Same word. Same word. And that introduces the whole Psalms to us as that the way of wickedness, the way of evil, their way is a way that will perish, be destroyed. Any questions there on one through six or comments there? This theme is the Lord is judge in verses seven through ten. Once again emphasized, it's already been emphasized, but in verse 7, the Lord abides forever. He has established His throne for judgment. Now, I do not understand why the New American Standard does this, but the word translated abides in the New American Standard in verse 7 is the same word translated sat. In verse 4, you have sat on your throne judging righteously. It is the same word used in verse 11 where the New American Standard says, Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Why not who sat? The point is, by the New American Standard, and this is very NIV-ish, of the New American Standard. By them translating this with a different English word every time, they are disguising the fact, same Hebrew word. And sometimes that helps. That helps you in reading the text. You say, oh, wait, Lord is said to say, but notice the Lord 
abides forever. In contrast to the memory of these wicked perishing in verse 7, in contrast to their name being blotted out forever in verse 5, you have the Lord in verse 7 abiding forever as judge. And He establishes His throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the people with equity. There are several psalms that stress God ruling with justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. Now I know the word for righteousness is different here. Uh, The word equity is a different word than the word generally translated righteous, but it's still the same idea. In Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, Thy throne, your scepter of righteousness, is a scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Uh, Psalm 72, verses 1 through 4, which is said to be by Solomon, it is a passage that emphasizes justice and righteousness. David in 2 Samuel 8, in verses 15 through 18, was said to do justice and righteousness. In 1 Kings chapter 10, in verse 9, Solomon sat on the throne and did righteousness and justice. Any human king who did a good job with justice and righteousness is only an imitation of the ultimate king who dispenses justice and righteousness. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgments for the people with equity. And in verse 10, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in a time of trouble. Now that word for stronghold, most of its uses are in the book of Psalms. What's the book of Psalms about? It's about a lot of things. But it's a book that emphasizes trust in God. And this is one way to do it. A stronghold for the oppressed. He is a stronghold in the times of trouble. And one of the things that we're going to mention, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks is some of the connections between Psalm 9 and 10. Look at Psalm 10 one. Psalm 10, 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, one of the writers that I looked at said this, that these specific two words in times of trouble tied together like this are only used in these two passages. I am hesitant to state that for sure because I think it may appear more than that. But... 9.9 and 10.1 both use this phrase in times of trouble. Even we need to remember this. Yes, even we who are faithful in our attendance at services, even we who continually seek to praise and worship Him, because it is easy for us to believe in time of trouble that God is hiding Himself, as 10.1 says. Why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? But 9.9 reminds us that God is a stronghold. God is a refuge. God is a fortress for the oppressed. He is a stronghold. In times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Now, there are all kinds of little word plays that, that are go or vocabulary ties throughout this psalm. For example, here in verse, in verse 10, a reference to those who know your name. In verse, in verse 2, of course, uh, I will sing praise to your name. But knowing God's name in verse 10 and praising God's name in verse 2 is contrasted with the wicked whose name in verse 5 is blotted out. 
Okay? Name of the Lord in verse 10. Knowing His name versus the name of the wicked being blotted out in verse 5. You who know, those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Remember when Joshua was told, I will not leave you nor forsake you. Same word for forsaken use here. The Lord does not forsake those who seek Him. In verse 11, sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion, who sits in Zion. Sing praise to the Lord. Zion is His dwelling place. Declare among the peoples his deeds. Tell everybody what he has done. For he who requires blood remembers them. Do not forget the cry of the afflicted. Now, I want to ask you in verse 12. I have here the New American Standard. He who requires blood remembers them. Do any of your translations have anything significantly different? John, you're shaking your head. NIV says, he who avenges blood. Avenges blood. Avenges blood. Um, that is the idea. Do any of your translations have seeks blood? That is the literal word. And let me tell you why I think that's significant. That word seek, and there are a couple of different words for seek in Hebrew, but this particular word for seek in 9.10 refers to those who seek Him, who seek God. Holman Christian uses that. Okay, Holman Christian uses that. Okay. and But here it talks about God in 9.12 seeking blood. Now, I do understand... I do understand why translators wrestle with that. Because what does that mean? He seeks blood. But I do think the meaning is there in the NIV. He avenges blood. Or here in the New American Standard, He requires blood. The idea is that God holds people accountable for shedding blood. Like, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And God says, if the the watchman does not warn the people, I myself will require it of him. The point is, God holds people accountable for shedding innocent blood. He who seeks blood remembers this. Now, also, this ties with chapter 10, verse 13. In chapter 10, 13, Why has the wicked spurned God? He said to himself, He does not require it. In 10, verse 13, that word require is this same word translated seek right here. The point is, they're saying in chapter 10, verse 13, God's not going to hold people accountable for shedding blood. That's what they're saying in 10, 13. But a 9, 12 affirms, yes, He will. That just as He will not forsake those who seek Him, so He will seek those who mistreat the poor, who mistreat the afflicted. And really the two parts of verse 12 go together. For He who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. What was Cain told? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to the ground. And that's the way it is here. The voice of... The blood of the afflicted, the afflicted and the needy and the broken and all the other terms that are used to identify them here is crying out to God. 
Notice too in this psalm the ideas of remembering and forgetting. And they will come back. They will come back again. But God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Will it seem like He does sometimes? Well, it seems like He's hidden Himself in times of trouble. It may seem like that. This psalm says it will not be the ultimate end of things. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Verse 13. See my affliction. In verse 12. He has affirmed God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And now he speaks about his affliction. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. And lift me up from the gates of death. That I may tell of your praises that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Now, I hope that you perceived as I was reading that and you were looking at your text, the use of the word gates in verse 13 and verse 14. In verse 13 is the gates of death. In verse 14 is the gates of the daughter of Zion. And that's a way to describe the city as uh, the, the, he, the city of Zion. But in one of the places, he is nearing disaster and nearing death. In one of the gates, he is nearing that. And in one of the gates, he is singing praise. He is rejoicing. He is celebrating God's deliverance. Sometimes the use of these repeated words can help so much in drawing a contrast in our mind. By the way, the word tell in verse 14 that I may tell of all your wonders is the same word tell in verse 1. I will tell of all your wonders and here I will tell of all your praises. In verse 15, the nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. So the pit in verse 15 and in verse 15, the net are pictures of plots that the wicked lay to trap the righteous. The nations have sunk down in the pit they have made, in the net which they hid. This is a picture of the wicked seeking to bring down the righteous. But you notice that their plans and plots, their traps, catch only themselves. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid their own foot has been called. At the end of verse 16, the work in the work of his hands, the wicked is snared. Now we saw this idea earlier. Psalm 7 had a lot to say about the Lord as judge. Psalm 7 did. But remember this idea of God punishing the sinner according to his plans and plots. In Psalm 7 verses 15 and 16, He has dug a pit and hollowed it out. He has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. The plots and the plans that the wicked lay for others end up trapping them. That's what Psalm 9, 15 and 16 is saying. Just like Psalm 7, verses 15 and 16 saying this. I want you to notice something else. Verse 16. The Lord has made himself known. Verse 10 talked about knowing God's name. How's God's name known? This is the same Hebrew root word used in a different tense. Has made himself known. When the wicked are plot, the wicked are called 
in the traps. They lay for others. God is revealing himself as a just judge. God is revealing his nature. Why does evil not pay and sin not pay? Why does sin bring destruction? Because God makes it that way. Our just and holy God makes it that way. Sometimes it might be in a dramatic way, like Nadab and Abihu struck dead in Leviticus 10, or Ananias and Sapphira struck dead in Acts 5. Sometimes it may be in us just experiencing the consequences of sin, like the book of Proverbs shows. Whatever the case, the Lord is making himself known. Now, I don't know all that's involved in verses 17 and 18. But, and I don't know all that's meant by Sheol here. I mean, Sheol refers to the realm of the dead. Generally, not so much the idea of judgment, but just the idea of this is where the dead are. But maybe it is some kind of a judgment. Here on the wickedness verse. The wicked will return to Sheol. Even all the nations who forgot God. That's the end of the wicked. And again the wicked and the nations in verse 17 are used in parallelism. But for those who forget God. They will go to Sheol. But in contrast to the nations forgetting their maker. Forgetting their God. In verse 18, the needy will not always be forgotten. The nations may forget God. The needy will not be forgotten by God. Nor will their hope perish forever. While the name and the very memory of the wicked man perishes in verses 5 and 6, the hope of the afflicted does not perish in verse 18. Nor will the hope of the afflicted perish forever. The needy will not be forgotten. In verse 12, it was the cry of the afflicted that was not forgotten. Same idea. The needy will not be forgotten. In verse 19, Arise, O Lord, Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. Arise, O Lord. He is confident that the Lord is a just judge. He is confident that the Lord is a strength to the stronghold, to the oppressed, that He will not forget the afflicted and needy, but He begs God to arise because He needs God's help and God's strength. And we do every day in our world. And every day in our world, I guess I am amazed at how many times we're able to live such normal lives considering we live in a world of such chaos and foolishness. But he's begging God in the midst of this world, O Lord, arise, do not let man prevail. Do you remember when Asa prayed in Second Chronicles 14, 11, and Zerah the Ethiopian was coming against him with that hard, huge enemy that, that outnumbered him almost two to one, and he says, let not man prevail before you. Second Chronicles 14, 11. Here, the same thing. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged. There's our theme of the Lord is judge. Put them in fear that the nations may know that they are but men. Now I want you to look over to 10.18. Look at 10.18. 10.18 ends Psalm 10. It says to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed that man who is of the earth may cause terror no more. Those men are causing terror in 10.18. In 9.20, God says, put them in fear, O Lord. 
For these people who try to terrify others, put them in fear, O Lord. Put them in fear. Let them know that they are but man. Now, you notice how I've been able to keep this outline up all night? It's pretty impressive, I think. But anyway, the word for man, there's several words in Hebrew for man. The same word is used in 919, 920, and 1018. But I don't tell you where else it's used. Look back to Psalm 8. What is man that you take thought of him? In that first phrase from Psalm 8, verse 4, what is man that you take thought of him? Uses this Hebrew word for man. Now the second part of the phrase uses another Hebrew word for man. Or the son of man that you visit him. But this verse uses the word for man. Now let me see if I can get what Gerald Wilson wrote here because he stated it a lot better than I can. In Psalm 8, frail and powerless mortal man is unexpectedly endowed with glory and honor by being placed as God's regent over the earth. Here in Psalm 9, the same frail man has perverted his divinely appointed role by dominating and oppressing weak and needy fellow humans. You see the contrast really strongly between these last two verses. Because it's here that you see that man is terrifying and oppressing his fellow creatures. What is man that you... Who are we that we are so... that you should pay so much attention to us? But yet in 1018, 10.18, these men are oppressing and mistreating others. 9, 19, and 20 calls God to judge them. And we can kind of put the pieces together without 1018. But with 1018, I think it makes it even clearer. The reason these nations have terror struck in their heart is because they seek to do that to others. By the way, let me make a quick point that I just I thought was interesting. If I knew this, I forgot it. Another reason some people think Psalm 9 and 10 are one psalm because Selah nowhere else ends a psalm. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's used it's used some points, but not at the very end. That's kind of like, what's the point? Yeah. That's the end of the psalm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I just, uh, I... Um, and no other song does that. That's what I was reading. Now, if we if we say that, if we if we if we find a case of that, I'm going to write all these authors. I'm going to say, listen, you're teaching false falsehood, teaching error, and you need to repent. But but they stated I did not look at all 71 times Salah was used. That they said it never ends, and I, I read that in more than one source. Okay, now. We've already talked about a couple of things that jump out to us. I think an idea, and at this time I'm going to try to erase this, talk about what is this teaching us? What does the psalm teach us? How does this provide good background for the New Testament? And I'm sure in doing this, there are going to be some good points that could be made that I'm not going to make. I'm not claiming that this is all there is, but but we've already seen this idea of the Lord being king. And while that word is not used, he does speak of sitting on his throne in verse 7, verse 4, and verse 7. But, but that is kind of only in passing. 
because as king, he is judge. He vindicates the innocent. He punishes those who are wicked. And God and his judgment is particularly highlighted in 9.4. In 9.7 and 8, you notice that verse 7 talks about his throne established for judgment. And then in verse 8, he will judge the world in righteousness. Uh, you also see a reference in verses, uh, verse 19. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. And one of the ways the Lord makes himself known, now verses 15 and 16, do not use the word judge, but it tells us that the Lord makes himself known by bringing judgment upon the wicked. He makes himself known. So obviously, God is acting as judge by bringing the consequences of the wrongdoer back upon his own head. And there are many other statements in the Psalms about judgment upon the wicked. They stumbled and failed, 9.3 tells us. Um, in 9.5, their name is blotted out. In verse 6, they're very, uh, they're, the memory of them perishes from the earth. In verse uh, 15 and 16 that we've already seen, the plans and plots they lay for others come back on them. They are assigned to Sheol. They are returned to Sheol in verse 17. And they are they are brought to, to recognize how frail, how weak, how powerless, how dependent they are. Show them that they are men. By the way, I didn't mention there, there's a passage in Ezekiel 28, verse 2 and 9, where judgment is being pronounced on the king of Tyre. And the king of Tyre says, I am a god. But he says, when it comes time for your persecutors to kill you, are you going to say you're a god then? He can bring people to a recognition of how weak they are. A judge judges those who are wicked and a judge vindicates the righteous. Now again, Psalm 7 dealt with some of these same things of God as judge. But but the Lord vindicates the righteous. He is a stronghold for the oppressed in 9.9. In 9.10... Those who have forsaken, he does not forsake those who seek him. In 9.12, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. In 9 verse 18, he will not forget the needy. And in verse 19, the hope or, no, this is verse 18 again, excuse me. Really, in both lines of verse 18, the hope of the afflicted will not perish. God as judge is going to bring down the wicked. He's going to vindicate the righteous. And just like Psalm 1, this psalm makes a sharp distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Psalm 7 does that. Psalm 9 does that. <clears throat> makes a sharp Distinction between them. But these promises are powerful here. He is a stronghold in times of trouble. He does not forsake those who seek Him. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. He does not forget the cry of the needy. Let's say a little bit about Jesus in Psalm 9. Jesus in Psalm 9. Jesus is judge, isn't He? 
The Father judges no one, John 5, 21 through 23 says, but He has committed all judgment to the Son. And just as in Psalm 9, in verse 8, God is said to judge the world in righteousness, so the Bible tells us that before the Son of Man will be gathered all nations, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. In Acts Acts 17, verse 31, God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He has ordained. Acts 17 and verse 31. Here's the same thing, same phrase. He will judge the world in righteousness. Not saying it's same phrase in Greek. I did not compare that, but same phrase in English. Jesus is the judge who will bring down those who are wicked, who will vindicate those who are righteous, He is our judge. He is our refuge. This is kind of building on Psalm 9, verse 9 in particular. God is our refuge. God is our strength. And He's a refuge in Psalm... uh, Remember how Jesus used the parable of the man who hears his sayings and does them is like a person who builds his house on the rock. He is a solid foundation. And when the rains come and the storms sweep against that house, it will not fall. He is a refuge. A refuge. But I'll tell you what I find most powerful here. And looking at Jesus... In verse 13, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death. Now that term gates of death, gates of death, let me look at see if it's gates of, uh, in verse 14, lift me up from the gates of death. This phrase, or a phrase like it, are used in Job 38.17. It's used in Psalm 107 verse 18. And Isaiah 38 in Hezekiah's prayer, I believe verse 18. No, it's verse 10. Verse 10. The gates of death are a poetic way to speak of death. But here he is pleading, he is pleading with God, oh, be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction from those who hate me, and lift me up from the gates of death. What did Jesus say? In Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church and the gates of Sheol will not prevail against it. What does that mean? That means all who trust in Him, they will not perish. All who who, who put their confidence in Him, uh, that, that God will not forget the cry of the afflicted. That the hope of the afflicted will not perish. That the needy will not always be forgotten. That God will raise His people from the, the, the dead. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. The gates of hell was a powerful threat. The gates of death was a powerful threat in the Old Testament. But here Jesus is going to conquer this by His death and resurrection. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now think about the original Psalm. Think about Psalm 9. What do we say the gates of death contrasted with? The gates of the daughter of Zion. Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Do you remember what Revelation 14 says? Revelation 14, 
I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with Him 144,000 having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of the harpist playing on the harp. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Now, these people these people the 144,000 have been delivered from the gates of Hades. They've been delivered from the gates of death. And they're singing praise at the gates of the daughter of Zion. One of the writers said something on Psalm 8 last week. Psalm 8 has implications so big that they can only be answered by the death, the resurrection, and second coming of our Lord. we might could apply those words to every single psalm. Psalm 9, He delivers us from the gates of death and we sing praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. Any other thoughts? See, we've been gone an hour now. Um, we do not have a song tonight. So... Um, but thank you. Anybody else want to add anything? Okay, as we close...